Well, if you have a Bible, Exodus chapter 12. Exodus chapter 12. We're going to begin, or I'm sorry, end chapter 12 this evening, Lord willing, and begin chapter 13. Recall, we're right in the middle of this section of the Passover that we've been spending several weeks looking at. This is how we've subdivided Exodus chapters 12 and 13. Um, We looked first at the first few verses of chapter 12, the Passover being instituted. So that is the kind of the the pre, you know, 10th plague event, but God is laying out the, uh, the laws concerning Passover. And so we have Passover being instituted, then Passover being implemented. And that's the latter half uh, of chapter 12 from verse 21 to, uh, to 42, where we looked at the actual 10th plague itself. The Passover uh, is implemented. The, the slaying of the firstborn takes place and the exodus itself commences. So that's what we looked at last well, a couple, three weeks, because last time we took a little excursus on the date of the Exodus, which is a matter of great importance uh, because it is a matter of so much debate when it comes to uh, the, the scholarly world, particularly the secular world. I won't rehash all of that, but it's a very important biblical issue where biblical inerrancy is at stake. So we took a week, just an excursus on that, and that was last time. Um, But tonight, we're going to pick it up in verse 43 of the chapter, and we'll see the Passover relegated, or I'm sorry, regulated, not relegated, regulated. All right, a little dyslexia this evening. But anyways, we're going to look at uh, first some some regulations that are repeated in the the, the first portion here, which is the tail end of chapter 12, not a lot of new information is given, mainly repetition of what we've already seen, but we'll, we'll touch upon it briefly. And then we'll jump into this, uh, the first 16 verses of chapter 13, which is the Passover commemorated. There's a particular uh, ceremony that God sets forth, the, uh, the commemoration or the dedication of the firstborn that is meant to commemorate the Passover. And there's a number of things that are communicated about God and about the Passover uh, in this this uh, law that is worth visiting, all right? So again, we're, we're in this, the tail end of the section where the Passover is, it's such an important section. Again, two chapters are dedicated to it where the Passover, and again, we talked about that many times, the Bible is economic, right? It's, it's, it's economic in its word choice. It can't be exhaustive. So it's selective by nature. But when we have so much ink, like in this particular situation, two whole chapters dedicated to the Passover and all of his various parts, it's obviously a point of emphasis. God is slowing down and he's spending a lot of time talking about the Passover as a way of underscoring its importance. And so, so again, we're, we're finishing that section here this evening, Lord willing, and then we'll, we'll jump into the narrative uh, at the end of chapter 13 and into the next several chapters. We now have the wilderness narrative where they leave Egypt and they're now in the wilderness. And uh, we've got some exciting stuff ahead of us. All right, so uh, if you got your Bible, let's read this first section. Uh, we'll look at this final set of regulations that God gives uh, to the Passover. From chapter 12, verse 43, let's read to the end, verse 51, all right? So Exodus 12, verse 43 says, And the Lord said unto Moses and Aaron, This is the ordinance of the Passover. There shall no stranger eat thereof, but every man's servant that is bought for money, when you have circumcised him, then shall he eat thereof. A foreigner and a hired servant shall not eat thereof. In one house shall it be eaten. You will not carry forth aught of the flesh abroad out of the house, neither shall you break a bone thereof. 
all the congregation of Israel shall keep it. And when a stranger shall sojourn with you and will keep the Passover to the Lord, let all his males be circumcised. And then let him come near and keep it. And he shall be as one that is born in the land, for no uncircumcised person shall eat, the, eat thereof. One law shall be to him that is homeborn and the stranger that sojourns among you. Thus did all the children of Israel, as the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron, so did they. And it came to pass the selfsame day that the Lord did bring the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt by their armies. Pause there. Now, again, um, this, what we looked at last time, verses 40 to 42, and we did, uh, you know, that excursus on the timing of the Passover, the timing of Exodus, the date of the Exodus, but those verses, verses 40 to 42, laid special stress on when the Passover was to be observed. Uh, but now, from, the, from there forward, the tail end of the chapter, we have additional clarifying material describing who may eat the Passover uh, meal, where, and how it must be eaten. And then finally, in verse 50, we have yet one more reminder of when it's to be eaten. You know, the day of Passover, right? That 14th of Nisan. And so, again, the, the, these are kind of appended, uh, appendix, if you will, appendages, an appendix to the Passover uh, narrative, giving us some of these final regulations that we need to be aware of, all right? So it's kind of inserting these certain things. Who can eat, where, and how the Passover is being eaten. So verses 43 to 48 that we just read highlights who can partake of the Passover, all right? We're not going to spend long with this, but there is some practical insights here. Verse 44, for instance, highlights that Passover is decidedly not restricted by social status. In fact, this is true of all Israeli laws. They were class-free in contrast to other laws in their you know, time and place. In other words, I'm not going to get lost in this, but if you get into ancient Near Eastern literature, right, they have a bunch of books out on this right? because we have a ton of ancient Near Eastern literature, and it's pretty boring stuff, most of it, if you read. Right? Yeah, every once in a while, you get to the Epic of Gilgamesh or something that's actually interesting to read. But nonetheless... Um, we have a lot of literature from this time and place in, you know, in, in history. And what's fascinating is to take some of those law codes and compare them with biblical law. And there's parallels, there's contrasts that are, uh, can be rather fascinating. But what it, one thing that comes up over and over again, and we'll talk about this more when we get to biblical law, like the Ten Commandments and you know, the, the, uh, some of the laws from Exodus 21 and 23 there, but what you'll discover is that in ancient law codes, many of them were class sensitive. In other words, the laws changed or the penalties changed depending upon your social status. The wealthy and the noble classes were favored, and the poor people had stricter laws. All right? What we'll see when we get to Mosaic law, biblical law, is the opposite. It's actually free of class distinction. However, that being said, the text does make it crystal clear that no stranger is to eat the Passover. Now, the word stranger is the Hebrew word nikar, and it refers to a foreigner or an outsider. The word does not primarily refer to someone ethnically non-Jewish, but rather someone unassociated with the covenants of Israel. Let me, this is an important distinction to make because I think uh, we'll, we'll see even a New Testament application to this. But in other words, this phrase did not refer to a racial or ethnic discrimination. Rather, it represents proper religious discrimination. 
In other words, I like the way as, as Stewart puts it, he says this, quote, those who refuse to join by faith and practice the united community of believers set apart from all others precisely by faith and practice have no more right to claim membership in that community than a person without a driver's license has the right to operate an automobile on public roads, end quote. In other words, do you see the distinction he's making? When it says that no pass or no stranger can partake in Passover, some misread that and they say, oh, in fact, there's a number of uh, liberal scholars that make that point, and they say, well, Israel was just a bunch of, you know, ethnic supremacists. They believed they were better than everybody else, and no one else could... Well, that's not what the, the text is actually describing. It's make a distinction, not based upon race or ethnicity, but upon religion. In other words, why would you worship the Yahweh God of Israel by celebrating Passover if you don't believe in Yahweh God of Israel? That's the point is that there's a proper religious discrimination going on. In other words, he's saying only those who are, uh, you know, truly have sworn their allegiance or are, have bowed the knee, whatever idiom you want to use, to Yahweh as the one true and living God, only they can participate in Passover. Does that make sense? In other words, this is, and again, this is a big thing today, right? I mean, this is a hot-button issue we can get lost in. The whole idea of discrimination is a big word. Right, whether whether it's uh, upon race or you know gender identity or whatever else, and yet and churches are coming under attack, not just churches, corporations, all sorts of stuff, but churches are coming under under attack when they take a stand and they say, well, God says, right here's the biblical standard of morality, whatever we're going to restrict membership to those who adhere to that, right, and then they're upset that you won't let them in the door, you know what I'm saying? Well, you should, you should, well, there's a, but the idea is there's a proper sort of religious discrimination. You're saying, well, you're saying you don't want to believe in God, and yet you want to worship God along with us? That doesn't fit. Does that make sense? So that's the sort of discrimination that is here being described. In fact, verse 45 goes on to add other categories of people that would not be qualified to partake in Passover, really for the same reasons. Another one, not only a stranger, but a temporary resident. This is a, a different Hebrew word, but it would be these temporary residents would be excluded from the Passover because, again, he or she would be someone without faith in Yahweh who is simply visiting or passing through or staying for a few days or weeks to help with some sort of project. Similarly, the, uh, the temporary resident, is there's another category, a hired worker who is really the same sort of uh, person in Israeli society would be disqualified because he or she would be, again, someone without faith in Yahweh who is merely doing some work on a household property, staying at the property temporarily while doing so, etc. So again, it's, it's referencing these individuals who it's, it's talking particularly about their religious, religious affiliation, if that makes sense. Um, however, we do see a different category of person in verse 48 and I'm not going to get lost in this, but if you do detailed study of Mosaic law, you will find that these categories stay true throughout Mosaic law. In other words, a stranger, a foreigner who's passing through the land of Israel is different than a sojourner. Verse 48 highlights a sojourner. Verse 43 talks about the foreigner or the stranger versus the sojourner. The former has lived in the land. A sojourner, for instance, is someone who lives in the land with the people of Israel for some time, a length of time. They've settled in the land, and therefore they have special privileges that are given to them by Mosaic law. 
For instance, if we were to comb through, and this is just uh, a representative list, Currid points out for us, but a sojourner is a resident who enjoys the rights of assistance, protection, and religious participation. He has the right of gleaning, according to Leviticus chapter 19 and Leviticus 23. He has the right of participation in the tithe in Deuteronomy chapter 14. The Sabbath year, Leviticus 25, as well as the cities of refuge. He could have access to the cities of refuge. Um, however, he could not participate in the Passover unless he was circumcised. We'll talk about the circumcision stuff in just a minute. But can you think of examples? I don't want to get lost in this for too long, but can you think of examples of individuals in Israeli history that were sojourners in the land? In other words, they were not ethnically Jewish, but they did dwell alongside the Jews and therefore had access to certain privileges in the law. Do you have one, Joe? Ruth. Okay, so Ruth. Okay, that's a big one. So she's a Moabitess, right? A Moabite woman who she comes over, and she is a sojourning in the land. And she, she comes, and, and uh, of course, that's a beautiful story, but she's incorporated in the land of Israel and in the, in the laws of Israel. She has access to glean in the fields, right? Because she's sojourning in the land. She's associating with the people of Israel. She's uh, explicitly, she says there, right, your God will be my God. Your people will be my people. All right, did, uh, Gordy, did you have, is there another hand up? Well, I think Rahab. Okay, so Rahab is another big one, all right? And that's a, that's a fascinating one because Rahab, she throws her loyalties in, right, with Israel against her, uh, her own pagan, you know, society there in Jericho. And so, and it says explicitly, right, not only is she spared the destruction, well, when the city is destroyed, she, she is spared, her and her family, anyone that was in, you know, her dwelling, but then if you keep reading that passage in Joshua 6, it says that she was incorporated into the nation of Israel. She married into it. That's right. She even married into it. That's exactly right. Becomes part of the lineage of Christ. That's right. That's right. That's right. All right, good. So uh, one that I, I think it's, you know, there's a bunch of the examples of this. Um, but another one that I, I enjoy, you know, the whole battle of Sisera, Deborah, Barak, and then you have Jael with the nail. That's always how I remember it, right? Jail with the nail. But when the Sisera, the, the uh, general of the Canaanite army is fleeing, remember this? He, he loses the battle and he jumps off his chair and he flees and he goes into the tent of jail, right? And, and he went there. But what's interesting, it, it describes this, uh, this tent and this people group that is there as... Again, they're, they're uh, not ethnically Israeli, but they are living and dwelling in the land right alongside the Israelites. Je and Je Jethro's offspring somehow, wasn't it? I think it was, actually, now that you bring it up. I think it was Jethro's offspring. Um, in other words, Jethro, the father-in-law of Moses, right? Are you with me? There's many of his descendants follow Israel into the land. Not all of them did, but some of them did. And I think you're right. It was an offshoot from Jethro's clan. That's right. But the point is, when, that, when Sisera runs into the tent, he's looking for refuge. He's hiding. But then, of course, what does Jael do? Well, she kills him, 
right? Well, she lulls him to sleep, right? She gives him warm milk and a blanket. <laughs> I'll read the story. And then he goes to sleep, and then she, whoop, you know, tent spike right through the skull. And uh, it's a great story to read your children sometimes. But it is, uh, but in so doing, what she does is she throws in her allegiance to Israel, right? She says, oh, I'm going to, just like Rahab did. Right? And that's kind of the whole point. So in other words, we have lots of examples of this. But a sojourner is one who has associated with Israel. And so he says they can participate if, and then there's one more stipulation, if they're circumcised. Now, why is that important? Well, again, Genesis chapter 17 tells us that circumcision, this is what God gave to Abram, and that Abram became Abraham. Right? God renames him in Genesis 17. But circumcision was required for one to partake, partake of Passover. And the reason for this is because Passover um, was, again, a way to, to show allegiance to Yahweh and the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But the sign, the token to associate with the Abrahamic covenant was circumcision. And the Abrahamic covenant was the foundation for the Exodus. In other words, God promised to Abraham that the Exodus would occur. In Genesis 15, verse 18. We've talked about that before many times. But the point is, we see there that it's a way of, of swearing allegiance to the, the Abrahamic covenant. And that was the basis for the Exodus. So it's appropriate then that he says, okay, only those who are circumcised can participate in Passover. In other words, those who have submitted to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The, you know, they, they are participants in the Abrahamic covenant. Now, again, I think just a quick note here, and then we'll get off it. But I think there's a possible New Testament parallel to this, particularly in Matthew 26 and John 13. Now, this is debated, but I think the majority probably of scholars would side if you compare Matthew 26 and John 13 that Judas, the betrayer, leaves the upper room before Jesus institutes the Last Supper. And there's some debate on that, but most are agreed that that's probably what transpires. And in fact, if you read John's account in particular, it seems that Jesus purposefully exposes Judas to get Judas to leave the room. And then he, he, he initiates, you know, the Lord's Supper. And he teaches that. So the point is, it, it seems to be, and, and, you know, of course, Paul will later build upon that in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Um, but... The idea is that unbelievers ought not to participate in communion of, you know, of the Lord's table. Because the word communion means you share this in common, right? That we are all, all who come to the Lord's table are communing one with another and with Christ in memorial, memorializing who Christ is, what he's done for us. So as I often say, you know, as we're doing the Lord's table, I say don't make a mockery of what God has called sacred. If you're an unbeliever, you have no right participating in communion. You're making a mockery of it because you don't, you know, you're, you're, you don't believe the very thing that we're commemorating. You're a hypocrite to participate. And you're actually warned against participating, 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And so that's, again, do you see a parallel here? That's the idea, is that those who are faithful to Yahweh and have sworn allegiance to Yahweh, okay, they can participate in Passover. Those who have not should not participate. All right? That's, that's all that's going on. But then the text goes on, verse 46, 47, tells them not only who can partake of Passover, but where they are to partake. Again, practically, 
You know, it makes a lot of sense. But the Passover, it says in verse 46 and 47, is to be eaten in a house, in a home, particularly a single home. That is when, because uh, recall this was earlier, that you're supposed to eat all of the Passover lamb. So it says several, pa- if, if your family wasn't big enough to eat the whole lamb, then you would gather, you know, multiple families together perhaps, but you would go into a single home, you know, a single lamb for that, you know, home, and then you try to eat it all up or you would burn the remain, right? You know, the remainder, you, would, you wouldn't uh, just throw it out because it was a sacred meal. But it must be eaten indoors because first that best recalls to the worshippers' minds, the need to stay indoors during the 10th plague. In other words, that was the, when the, the first Passover takes place. Remember, we talked about this a lot a few weeks back, but the whole blood over the doorpost, the idea is they are hiding in the home underneath the blood. They're, they're beneath the blood. The blood is the refuge, and they're hiding from that angel of death that's coming. And so the idea is he says, when you commemorate Passover, you have to be indoors. Now, not all Jewish festivals were that way, right? We're, we're not here to talk about sukkah, you know, the sukkah and the sukkot. But a sukkah, remember, you know what a sukkah is? It's an outdoor temporary dwelling. The, the, the festival of sukkot is an eight-day festival where you go and you build like a hut outside. And you live in that for eight days. And it was meant to be a reminder of Israel's time in tents in the wilderness. All right? But for Passover, he says, you got to do it indoors. Why? Because, again, it's commemorating the original event when they were hiding inside with the blood on the doorposts, etc. But, of course, that would also serve a secondary practical reason. As Stuart points out, eating indoors prevents those who are non-qualified, uh, you know, non-circumcised, etc., from helping themselves to the meal. Right? In other words, it's a way to put up boundaries, if you will, and be sure that the earlier stipulation is also being followed, if that makes sense. But verse 50 and 51 rehearses stuff that we already know, but it tells us when they are to partake. In fact, it's just repeating earlier stuff that we saw at the beginning of the chapter, but these verses are merely inserting yet another reminder as to when the Passover is to be eaten, namely on Passover, right? It's the 14th of Nisan, uh, is, is what they will later call that month. It's Abib in uh, Genesis 12. It's called that the month of Nisan. It just goes by different names. They, we believe those names changed largely during the Babylonian uh, captivity. They just updated the names of the months. But the, So you'll see that sometimes, the month of Abib, or Aviv, it's A-B-I-B, um, or Nisan, but it's referring to the same month. All right, so any thoughts, questions on that? Before, because those are some basic regulations he rounds out the chapter with in chapter 12 before he jumps into chapter 13. All right, any questions on that? Comments on that before we jump into the next chapter? You guys are all such bright students, right? You're like, no, we got it. Okay, moving on. So let's jump in to chapter 13, verses 1 to 9 uh, real quick. And let's talk about, let's read this section um, well, actually, I'm, uh, we're going to go past that to verse 16. I don't know why I have verse 9 on there. So let's read from verse 1 to verse 16. We've got uh, about a half hour left here. Let's see if we can digest this section, uh, which will set us up nicely for uh, getting into the narrative next time. 
But Exodus chapter 13, verse 1, let's just, just follow along as I read. It says this, And the Lord spake to Moses, saying, Sanctify unto me all the firstborn whatsoever opens the womb among the children of Israel, both of the man and of the beast. It is mine. And Moses said to the people, Remember this day in which you came out, of, out from Egypt, out of the house of bondage, for by strength of hand the Lord brought you out of this place. There shall be no leavened bread to be eaten. Uh, this day came you out in the month of Abib. Right There's the Abib, Nisan, same you know month. It just kind of depends on which era you know, you're, you're talking of. They, they relabel it, but it's the same time period. Verse 5, And it shall be that when the Lord shall bring you into the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, Hivites, Jebusites, which he swore unto your fathers to give you, a land flowing with milk and honey, that you shall keep this service in this month. Seven days shall you eat unleavened bread, and it shall, and in the seventh day shall be a feast to the Lord. Unleavened bread shall be eaten seven days, and there shall no leavened bread be seen with you, neither shall there be leaven seen with you in all your quarters. And thou shalt show your son in that day, saying, This is done because of that which the Lord did unto me when I came forth out of Egypt, and it shall be for a sign unto you upon your hand, and uh, for a memorial between your eyes, that the Lord that the Lord's law may be in your mouth. For the strong hand hath the Lord brought you out of Egypt. You shall therefore keep this ordinance for his season from year to year. And it shall come to pass, when the Lord shall bring you into the land of the Canaanites, as he swore, uh, swore unto you and to your fathers, and shall give it to you, that you shall set apart unto the Lord all that open the matrix, and every firstling that comes of a beast which you have, the males shall be the Lord's. And every firstling of the ass shall you redeem with a lamb. If you will not redeem it, then you shall break its neck. And all the firstborn of man among your children uh, you shall redeem. And it shall be when your son asks you in time to come. Do you see how many times this comes up, this, this Q&A format? It's really interesting. But uh, we see it here yet again, verse 14. It shall, and it shall be when your son asks you in time to come, saying, What is this that you shall say to him? By strength of hand. Notice the third time in this text it said, Strength of hand. The Lord has brought us out from Egypt from the house of bondage. And it shall come to pass, or and it came to pass, when Pharaoh would hardly let us go, that the Lord slew all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of beast. Therefore I sacrificed to the Lord all that opened the matrix being males, but all the firstborn of my children I redeem. And it shall be for a token upon your hand and for frontlets between your eyes. For by strength of hand, there's the fourth time, the Lord brought us forth out of Egypt. Pause there. Now, first, as we look at this uh, section from verse 1 to verse 16, I want to just quickly make a couple comments on the structure of the passage and then the purpose of the passage. In other words, you might have noticed this as we read our way through the first two verses of the chapter in verse uh, 1 and 2 of chapter 13, they appear to be out of place. Because what we see in verse 3 to 10, you know, verses 3 to 10 revert back to the discussion of Passover regulations, which is largely repetitive from what we've already seen in the previous chapter. It's talking about Passover, particularly the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which, because uh, Passover is a one-day event, and then it kicks off a seven-day event known as the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So it's an eight-day, you know, cluster, if you will, of... Uh, two festivals, Passover and Feast of Unleavened Bread. Um, and even within there, there's the Feast of First Fruits, which uh, we'll talk about in just a, a second. We talk about it more later, but 
it's probably at the Feast of First Fruits that the uh, the firstborn is to be dedicated. All right. So, yes, sir. <laughs> yes, you're getting ahead of me, but you're right. That's Numbers chapter 3, I think. Numbers chapter 3. I'll come back to that in just a second. Because uh, this, yeah, that passage and this passage have a, they interplay, they overlap. But notice quick the, the, the structure of the passage. The first two verses seem to be out of place because verses 3 to 10 revert back to a discussion of Passover regulations. But then it's not till verse 11 that the author gives a detail, uh, give, gives detail to the laws of the firstborn. In other words, the law of the firstborn is like introduced in verses 1 to 2. Then he goes back to talking about Passover and then he picks it up again in verse 11 to verse 16. Now again, there's a significant connection between the Passover and the consecration of the firstborn. In other words, the structure, which might be confusing to you, is actually intentional in showing us that there's a direct uh, correlation. That the dedication of the firstborn is meant to be connected with Passover. And again, the reason for this is that, you know, in Egypt, God had destroyed the firstborn of the Egyptians, both man and beast. Now he's redeeming Israel's firstborn and they belong to him. So he wants you to see that. So verses 3 to 10, we're not going to spend a lot of time with because it doesn't give us much new information that we've already seen uh, from what we've already seen back in chapter 12. But verses 3 to 10 rehearse certain Passover regulations. And these verses are largely repetitive of earlier announcements. But recall again that even the repetition is intentional because the original audience would have been hearing this read. So repetition is important for key, you know, key ideas so that it sinks in as they're listening to this being read. But nonetheless, one you know, other thing that's worth mentioning, uh, and there's so many things worth mentioning. Let me, let me give a little spiel real quick on uh, this cluster of fest- festivals, right? Because you have seven mosaic feasts that are detailed for us in Leviticus 23. But they occur in three seasons. There's a spring cluster of three, there's a summer singular feast, and then there's a fall cluster of three. All right, so you have your seven. In the spring, you have Passover, which is a one-day event. It's, it, it kicks off a seven-day week known as the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which basically you can't eat any leavened bread during that time. Right? It's kind of a, uh, a week long festival, but it's tied to the Passover, right? Because part of the Passover is unleavened bread. So then you eat nothing but unleavened bread, no leaven for that seven-day period. But within that seven-day period, you're going to have a Sunday, right? Somewhere in that seven-day period. That Sunday is the Feast of first fruits. Now, during the Feast of first fruits, there's a number of things that you have to do. One of them, apparently, was uh, the, the ded- dedication of the firstborn. Now, some will argue whether that was to take place like you waited to do it, you know, only that one time a year or that if you had to do it that was when you do it in other words when we get to new testament we see jesus as the firstborn son of mary and joseph remember this luke chapter 2 he is taken to the temple because they do this does that make sense but it doesn't seem to fit chronologically with the day you know the feast of first fruits per se though they're related ideas 
because the Feast of First Fruits was the first part of your crop you take and you dedicate to God. You say, thank you for giving me this crop, right? You give it back to God. It's, you know, a lecture for another time. But when you give those, Deuteronomy 26 actually gives you a set of things you're supposed to say when you give God your first fruits. Well, the firstborn is similar to that, right? It's not the first fruits of your crop. It's the first fruits of your family, right? It's the firstborn son who would be, again, that all-important firstborn that we talk about so much, right? And the, the idea of uh, it, it's a, the person who would be the one who takes over the clan, right? He's the one who has double portion. But then he says, you take that firstborn and you dedicate him to God through this ceremony. So um, we'll, we'll come back to that in a minute. But what's interesting is when we come to the life of Christ, you remember, those, the, those spring festivals are significant because Jesus dies. He's crucified on Passover, right? He's entombed, Feast of Unleavened Bread. And then he rises again from the grave on Sunday of the, the week, first fruits, the Feast of First Fruits. And so when Jesus rises from the grave on the Feast of First Fruits, Paul will later call Jesus the first fruits of the resurrection. All right? In other words, he, he rose from the grave on the Feast of First Fruits, but then he's also the first fruits of the resurrection, meaning the first one to be resurrected. Not only is it the first, but it's also hearkening that there's more coming, right? Is he, is he going to be the only one resurrected? No, all who trust in him, he's promising us participation in the resurrection, but he's the first one. He's the best one. And then he's promising that there's more coming. There's more to follow. Does that make sense? We, we get really lost in some of the calendar stuff there. It's really interesting. Um, but, but I want you to try and understand best you can, you know, from how, how it works in Old Testament law, because when you drag it into a New Testament context, you see all sorts of cool stuff. All right. Um, but just sidebar real quick. Verse 9 also mentions this idea of a memorial being a sign upon your hand and between your eyes. This is one of about three passages where the Orthodox Jewish community gets the idea of phylacteries. Are you familiar with this? Do you know what a phylactery is? I should have given a picture of it. When I was in Israel, remember this? Gordy, you remember the phylacteries? We were walking through Jerusalem downtown old city Jerusalem yeah and there was this little kid and there was this rabbi teaching a little kid uh, how to tie on a phylactery and a phylactery there's there's two versions of it some will wear both it's a pouch it's a little leather pouch with a big leather string basically that you either tie around your forehead so it sits right between your you know your eyes your you know between your eyes it says in verse 9 or they wrap it on their hand Right, where, and, and where, again, it says it'll be upon your hand or between your eyes. And so they read that literally. The word phylactery actually comes from uh, Greek. And I don't think I have this in your notes. The Greeks, when they discovered the Jews doing this, they are the ones who named them phylactery. Phylactery is actually a Greek word that basically means good luck charm. You know, because that's how the Greeks viewed you know, the Jews doing this, that it was just kind of like their version of, you know, a lucky rabbit's foot or something. You know, it was like a good luck charm. That's the way the Greeks viewed it, and that's how they labeled it with the word phylactery, and it stuck. It stuck to history. But according to Talmudic, that would be the Jewish Talmud, the Talmudic interpretation, this is a reference to the precept of wearing phylacteries. 
Again, I think I already told you that, but phylacteries are leather straps worn on the arms and the head of a worshiper, which contain in that little leather pouch, it contains copies of this passage, uh, Exodus 13, 1 to 10, as well as some other passages. They typically also will put in there the Shema, Deuteronomy 6. They'll also put in there another passage. Um, oh, it comes up later. Just slipped my memory, but it's another one. It's two from Exodus and one from Deuteronomy, if I recall, that are in all of the phylacteries. Some will include other ones, but those are considered the standard passages that need to be in there. But phylacteries are then fitted on the person during morning prayers. Uh, some would wear them all day. Others would just put them on for morning prayers or you know evening prayers. But they'd be fitted on. And the evidence for this practice derives largely from the Second Temple period. But uh, so we don't see this practice being in the Old Testament times, and it probably then roots to the Babylonian captivity, though there's some debate on that. So there's, there's long been a debate amongst even Jews, Jewish sects, regarding the use of phylacteries, um, whether this passage in Exodus 13.9 is to be taken literally, like literally where you know, this as a commandment bound to your hand or to your, you know, between your eyes. But others will side with the idea that this is meant to be taken uh, idiomatically. In other words, evidence that this injunction, this command was to be figurative is found in the poetic sections of Scripture, for instance, where it talks in Proverbs 3.3 about taking the commandments and binding them around your neck or writing them on your heart, right? In other words, it, just, it uses those same two uh, phrases, in the same verse, it says, bind them around your neck and write them on your heart. Some will take that, you know, literally, though the whole write on your heart, right? It's like you don't literally write on your heart. So is it talking about memorizing it? Is it talking about wearing a necklace over your heart? Like, what is it? You see what I'm saying? So different Orthodox groups will read that differently. But if you go to Israel today, you will see the practice of phylacteries. You'll still see that. Uh, and it's, I mean, it takes place outside of Israel too. I mean, you know, Orthodox Jews will do it outside of the land of Israel, but that's where we saw it, was walking downtown Jerusalem. Um, but the point is, whether you take it literally or figuratively, the idea, the command is that the keeping of Passover was meant to be a memorial. That is, it was meant to make them distinct uh, as if Israel was branded on the hand or the forehead. It was to make, in other words, it's probably meant to be, he's saying here, you know, the Passover itself is to be something you keep regularly to where it's obvious. It's as obvious as if you were branded on the hand or on the forehead. All right, does that make sense? Now, quick excursus on this. When we get to the book of Revelation, you know, we see examples of the mark of the beast, right, being on the hand or the forehead. Remember this? Um, we see the examples of not only that, but those, the 144,000, right? Not Jehovah's Witnesses. But the 144,000 Jews, right, that are mentioned there uh, in, in the book of Revelation, they're also sealed, right, on the forehead. And the idea is that, you know, there's, again, we see there's lots of ideas associated with that, but it's probably hearkening back to this idea that, the hand, the forehead. Later, this will become literal, later in the book of Exodus, for the high priest. Remember, the high priest is going before God. He is to actually wear across his head. He has a special head uh, piece that, is, that, is, that, is, that he wears. Emblazoned on the front, there's, there's a, uh, 
uh, and it's believed, in fact, when, they, when I was in Jerusalem, I went to the Temple Mount Museum, Temple Mount Faithful. It's a group that is, is putting together all the, uh, the furniture for the next temple that they plan on building. They have there a full you know, suit of the high priest that they've reproduced. And so it's actually a, their interpretation of it. It's a gold plate that was worn across, you know, it's like a headband for the high priest. And then inscribed on it, it says, holy to the Lord. And that's right out of the book of Exodus. And the idea is it was a sign of devotion to Yahweh. Well, the whole idea of the mark of the beast is the opposite. Right? It's not devotion to Yahweh. It's devotion to the Antichrist. Right? It's satanic. But it's the idea is Satan is mimicking it. Does that make sense? Rather than being devoted to Yahweh, you're devoted to, you know, Satan and his cause. Does that make sense? So we see this come up several times through the scripture, the idea of the, the hand or the forehead. Um, but it, it ultimately has this idea of a brand of loyalty, if you will. Whether you interpret it literally like those who practice phylacteries or figuratively in the sense that, you know, it was as the, the pass, keeping the Passover itself was that obvious sign of your, you know, brand of loyalty to the, to the Lord. You'll see people, you know, interpret it differently. But nonetheless, that's the idea behind it. Does that make sense? So what age would a, a young male start wearing one of these? Bar mitzvah. Bar mitzvah. Yeah. Yep. So bar mitzvah or bat mitzvah for the girl is the son of the commandment or the daughter of the commandment. Uh, it's right around 12 to 13, yeah. Typically 13 in modern day, yeah. That's right. But that's when they would go through, you know, their, and it's, it's a big deal. Remember when we were actually, uh, we were walking past the Western Wall? Do you remember that there was this party? And, and it was, and, and our guide told us about it. He forewarned us. He says, this is a big deal. And it always, and in modern Israel, they tend to do it on Tuesdays and Thursdays because those are the days that the synagogues will open up the Torah scrolls. Though, you know, because they're, they're, they have big Torah scrolls that are typically in a case, kind of like this. And they would, you know, close it up, lock it up. But then Tuesdays, Thursdays, they bust it out, and Saturdays. Tuesdays, Thursdays, Saturdays, and they bust, they bust it out and they read the Torah scroll. But you're not, I don't think you're supposed to do it on Saturday because it would break the Sabbath law commandment of how far you can walk. But if it's Tuesdays or Thursdays, they take that scroll and then there's this like little mini parade where it's the family and, you know, anyone, any, you know, bystander. That's why our guide told us if we walk by this, then he says we have to stop and, you know, we have to acknowledge this great event. Right? In other words, and, and some of our party even, you know, would jump up and down or twirl or, you know, clap or whatever the crowd was doing. But it's this little, it's this boy. I mean, he was 13 probably, you know, and they're, they're carrying the Torah scroll in front of him. And there's musicians all about. And they've got, you know, like the, the clarinet and all various stuff. And they're, they're, uh, they're making music. They're singing. They're, you know, and there's this, uh, I think the one that we saw, they were even carrying something over him, weren't they? Yeah, like horns, shofars. I think. I mean, it was a, it was loud, right? I mean, that was the whole point. I mean, it was a celebration, and everyone's supposed to stop and you know celebrate this this young boy becoming a man, right? Because it's it's his bar mitzvah, right? It's kind of a big deal. But that's where he would then, from there forward, be considered. You know, it's their kind of rite of passage, if you will. He's now a man, and he is to be a son of the commandment. Meaning, you are now responsible for the commandments that you know. 
right? We've taught you. We've discipled you. You know the commands. Now it's on you to obey them, right? And so it's, it's their rite of passage. But then he would, yes, be taught the phylacteries. Interesting. It is an interesting culture, delightful culture to get to know. It really is fascinating. But anyways, this is where, this is one of those passages where you get that idea, all right? Okay, so if you got just a few minutes, I got a few minutes by my clock. Let's, uh, let's talk briefly about uh, the dedication of the firstborn, particularly verse 1 and 2, and then verse 11 to 16 picks up the law. And the purpose, I'm not going to spend along with it. I know it looks like a lot, like I have five things listed there, but don't worry, I can do this quickly. <clears throat> right? Yeah, you, you don't believe me, do you? <laughs> okay, that hurts. That hurts just a lot. Yeah, right, right. So this time next month, we'll be on number three. <laughs> no. Okay, but the purpose of the Passover, or oh, I'm sorry, the, the purpose of the dedication of the firstborn, this passage, is really, I, I would say there's, there's five big ideas that we see from this law. And let me just rehearse them quickly. First is to commemorate Passover. Second, to condemn paganism. Third, to consecrate the firstborn. Four, to communicate God's position over the firstborn. In other words, he owns the firstborn. So if God's in charge of those who are in charge, it elevates God's you know, position and status. But then, last but not least, it contributes to the concept of redemption. In fact, the first time that the word redemption appears in the scripture is in this passage. All right, so it's it's important in its in its contribution to the overall concept of redemption that uh, the Bible is going to spend a lot of time developing. All right, so let me talk you through those real quick. First, the purpose of this law, the dedication of the firstborn, is to commemorate Passover. Again, again, we see it in verse 12, but to sanctify means to set apart or to separate. And, and verse 12 literally commands that they shall separate the, the firstborn. He says, you shall pass over every firstborn of the womb to Yahweh. There's obviously a wordplay here. He says, you pass over the firstborn to commemorate that God passed over them, right, in the first Passover. In other words, the whole point of this is God is wanting them to remember Passover, right? We see that most clearly in verses 14 and following when the son asks the father in days to come, why are we doing this? What is the point of the dedication of the firstborn? And the father is to say to the son, well, and he rehearses the events of Passover, right? He says, we're doing this because, look, we want to remember what God did in Passover. So the first point, and, and that's drawn out with even the word Passover, Right? He uses the word Passover in the text in verse 12 uh, in order to draw, to draw that apart or to draw that parallel. So again, the idea is he's wanting to, com- to commemorate Passover. But secondly, it's not just to, con- to commemorate Passover, but also to condemn paganism. Because if you're also familiar with that verb, to pass over, it is used in other passages to refer to the pagan practice of passing your children through the fire. It was actually a, the, the word, one of the words that was used to describe child sacrifice. You can see that, for instance, in Deuteronomy 18, 2 Kings 16. And so that's a horrid practice that God condemns. But he has in its place a different practice. Are we still to honor the firstborn? Yes but not by burning them alive to the god Molech. Rather, 
it's by commemorating them to the Lord, redeeming them from before the Lord. In other words, as Kurd points out, Yahweh does not require such barbarism of the idea of like to Molech, to, to offer the children in the fire. He wants the firstborn to be set apart and devoted to his service. Thus, the Israelites are not to pass over their children, their firstborn, to the fire, but pass them over to the Lord. All right, so that wordplay not only connects it to Passover, but it contrasts it with the pagan world that they were about to enter, right, in the Canaanite religion. And Molech worship was, was very alive and well in Canaan, where they were heading. And, and notice again how often he, he says that twice in the text, verse 5. Uh, and then where was the other verse? Verse 11, where he says, you're going into the land of the Canaanite, Hivite, Amorite, Hivite, you know, Jebusite. And then he says it again in verse 11. He just narrows it to the Canaanites. But he says, you're going into a pagan land. He says, so don't do it the way they do it. But rather, you are to redeem the firstborn. So again, notice in particular that this is a command to redeem the firstborn. He says in verse 12, he says, or I'm sorry, verse 13, he says, every firstling, whether it's of the ass or the lamb, you shall not redeem. In other words, you sacrifice those to the God, to, to God. Those become a sacrifice. If it's, um, uh, if you will not redeem it, then break its neck, right? We'll talk about that in just a second. They were to destroy it. In other words, they, if it's God's, you sacrifice it or destroy it. You don't, you know, keep it for yourself. He says, but all the firstborn of man, humans, you must redeem in verse 13. In other words, you don't sacrifice the children like, uh, you know, Yahweh God is not like Molech. Rather, you redeem them. Later, in Numbers chapter 18, it gives us the redemption price. It'll actually tell us that it was about five, she five shekels was the price to redeem your child back from God. So what they would do is they would take it to the temple. They would take the firstborn son. This is what Mary and Joseph did in Luke chapter 2 with Jesus. They take him to the, the temple and the idea is that you give him to God because he's God's. And then you pay five shekels and you get him back. <laughs> right? That's the word redeem, right? The word you purchase it back. And the idea is that you are acknowledging that that firstborn is God's, right? Because you, you have to pay God to get that child back because it's God's. That's the idea. God claims ownership. What's that? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, we're still paying for it. And it's way over three weeks worth of working wage. You know what I'm saying? Like, I haven't worked off this debt yet. <laughs> yeah, you could just have that one. <laughs> right, yeah. Yeah, they looked at him. They're like, yeah, that's a freebie. You can have him back. <laughs> oh, that's funny. But again, do you see, in doing that, it's, it's, again, third big concept is it's consecrating the firstborn. Meaning that Yahweh is claiming all the firstborn as his very own property. That's what's going on in this law. God is claiming all the firstborn as his very own property. And the only way to give Yahweh what uh, is his own property was to sacrifice it. You give it to him, right? Or you bar it from human use. For instance, as it says here, if it's like an unacceptable sacrifice, like a donkey, you don't sacrifice a donkey, so you break its neck. It's destroyed. And the idea is that you're, because you, you, you either burn it and send it up in smoke, or you kill it and bury it, and it goes back to the earth from which it came. And the concept is that you're sending it back to God. But when it comes to uh, 
humans, God gives the provision of redemption because God doesn't, you know, he's not asking for child sacrifice. He gives them a means by which they can, you know, take that child back. Does that make sense? Keep it, uh, and, you know, keep it by buying it from God. And so that's the concept behind it. You know, that's a great question. There's some debates on it. I mean, I, I've not found anything definitive on that. Um, but, boy, I'm, I'm open to ideas. Yeah, I haven't found anything definitive. Y'all hear it? She's just asking, why five shekels? Right? And I think, and that's a good question, you know, because we, we see, um, you know, I mean, the, the, the consensus of what I've read is, you know, the concept seems to be, that it's first enough value, right, to say, hey, there's, there's value to this, you know, child's life, but not something that's so burdensome that a family couldn't afford, if that makes sense. So, I mean, that's the consensus among the reading is that it's, you know, show the value, but it's not a burden where you couldn't afford your child, <laughs> right, because that's not the point, right? But I don't know. Other than that, I, I don't know of any specific you know, why the number five was used. I don't know. Yes? So they did this yearly, so that firstborn son would yearly be presented at the temple, or you do it one no. time? Yeah, one time. Okay. Yeah, I'm sorry. So, so yeah, sorry for not being clear on that. That's a good question. So it's just, it's a one-time redemption prize. Um, but it was, you know, and it seemed to be whenever you needed it. That's what Luke 2 seems to do, you know. But some debate because of how it's associated with first fruits, and it's even discussed here right after the Feast of Unleavened Bread and right where the, you know, the Feast of First Fruits is, then it's probably just simply connecting the concepts of first fruit and firstborn, whether it's the first fruit of your you know, ground, crop, cattle, or your children, all of it belongs to the Lord, but the children you purchase back, um, that's probably why it's here. Some will say that, well, maybe it's kind of like, you know, some churches do like one big baptism service once a year, right? And like every, they don't do it per individual, right? They just kind of save it all up and just once a year they get it all done. Um, you know, some will conjecture that that might have been when they do it. But the Luke 2 evidence argues contrary. I think it was whenever you had a firstborn, you took him to the temple, right? Because that's, that's what Mary and Joseph seem to do. Yeah. But it was a one-time, once-in-a-lifetime prize. No, that's different. Yeah, because our discussion on the 12 and the bar mitzvah, that was the phylactery thing. Oh, so that it was, but that's a different occasion. Yeah. Yeah, sorry. That Good, good. Uh, let, let me clarify that real quick. So in, in Luke 2, if you read the chapter, it, it describes two events, two temple trips. The one is when Jesus is an infant. In fact, it says she was through her, it was a 40-day purification, right? So after her 40 days were up, so Jesus is 40 days old, his first trip to the temple. And that's when Simeon, remember, and Anna, exactly. They, well, then there's another trip, and that's when Jesus is 12, and that's at the end of the chapter. And that is probably, by the way, Jesus' bar mitzvah, is, is arguably why he was there. Yep. So which I'm, I'm going to resist that because i got a whole thing on Jesus' bar mitzvah, all right? And that's kind of a fun thing to talk about. But, but let's, uh, let's wrap it up here. So again, the next thing, all right, we already talked about how it's consecrating the firstborn. 
Um, but it's also, I mentioned this a moment ago, but by consecrating the firstborn, it's a way of communicating God's position. In other words, when God claims the firstborn of the nation, Yahweh is essentially claiming ownership over that nation, right? Because the firstborn are those who possess the right to rule, and they're the ones who are going to receive the inheritance. We talked about that back a few weeks ago when we were talking about the 10th plague, but the firstborn is a hugely important cultural concept. Well, here it's the idea of the firstborn when God says all of the firstborn are mine. It's like a shorthand way of saying, I own everything. Because the firstborns are the ones who are supposed to get the you know, lion's share of the inheritance and the rulership of the clans, etc. So the God is saying, you know, I'm in charge. So again, the firstborn represent all that the nation has and is. So when Yahweh claims the firstborn, he's essentially claiming ownership over the nation. All right, but then, last but not least, it, uh, we'll talk about this more later. I'm just introducing it here. We'll talk about it more later. But this is the first occurrence. Verse 13, you can mark it down, circle it if you're of a mind to. But verse 13 is the first occurrence of the word redeem anywhere in the Bible. So God is introducing the concept that he's later going to develop with a lot of, of specificity. In fact, this is where, and I kind of you know, ran out of time, but this is where we loop in Tim's question earlier. In Numbers chapter 3, Yahweh is going to substitute the firstborn uh, for the tribe of Levi. In other words, God here is, he's claiming ownership over all the firstborn. Well, when we get to Numbers 13, God gives a switch. He makes a deal with Israel and he says, all right, I'll give you back the firstborn if you give me the tribe of Levi. So the tribe of Levi, right, the Levites, priests, they're going to become God's special possession, and there's significance for that, for the priesthood. You know, that's a lecture for another time. But it's so fascinating. Read the chapter sometime. But it's, God actually has them number the firstborn. He says, count every single firstborn in the nation. Count every single Levite. And the numbers didn't match. Right? They were off by, I forget, a few hundred. So God says, all right, so there's a swap. But the leftover, you've got to pay me. <laughs> I mean, it's an actual transaction that is taking place in, in Numbers chapter 3. But the idea is ownership. God owns the firstborn. And then, he, of course, he'll later you know, substitute him for the tribe of Levi. And he owns Levi in a special way. They are his property. And it's, it's, which is why later, and this is, again, lecture for another time, but this is why the tribe of Levi, the, the priests, they had access to God's offerings. All right. So if you as an average worshiper brought an offering to the Lord, remember this? You, got, you know, the, the priest takes it, puts it on the altar, and only the fellowship offering do you get a portion of that back. All the other offerings were either totally destroyed or they were burnt, part was burned up, the rest go to the priests and the Levites. They eat at God's table. Does that make sense? Because they're his, they're family. That's the idea. Yes? How come Levi and not Reuben or... Oh, okay, so... Is it because of the sins and... So, yeah, so hang with me. But that shows up later in Exodus with the golden calf incident. Remember, we'll get to it later. But in the golden calf, Moses come down from the mountain. Remember this? And then... Exactly. Moses says, who's on the Lord's side? And all of the tribe of Levi come to Moses. And then they go and they kill those who are participating in the worship with the golden calf. So that act of faithfulness and devotion to Yahweh, Yahweh says, all right, that's my tribe. And that's actually what gives them the special status. Yeah. So, good question. More on that later. Um, but 
one, you know, we'll just end with this and we'll be done. But I think much more on the redemption law later, right? The idea of buying back, purchasing. It's introduced here, but it's, it's going to become a huge theme later, which is so fascinating because God is, that's the way God is, right? He's such a good teacher. He's so good at introducing the ABCs, you know, and then building off of it. And this idea of redemption is a huge concept, Old and New Testament. Right? I mean, this covers many, many, many pages of your Bible. But here's the first time it's mentioned. And God's giving us an illustration of it. But then he's going to take us way further in what that means later on, through later law, history, poetry, prophecy, New Testament, etc. And so it's, just, it's so it's such a cool illustration of how good of a teacher God is. Right? I mean, it's like he's going to whip out the crayons. You know, he's going to start small and help us. And then he's going to, again, teach us bigger concepts as it goes on. God's the master teacher. But here's a good example of it. And, you know, that's, again, for future lectures. But the concept of redemption is here introduced for the very first time. But that's going to be a huge biblical theme. All right. So questions, comments? I'm out of time. Yeah, Gordy, we'll come over. Yes. So either way you don't, the donkey's gone. That's correct. That's right. The donkey is gone. No, and that's correct because that comes into play later with the clean and unclean laws, right? Because a donkey's an unclean animal. Does that make sense? In other words, it's not an acceptable sacrifice. The lamb would work, but not the donkey. Does that make sense? Yeah. So we'll come back to that. Yes. Oh, yeah. Because it's the firstborn of anything. Right? He says, all that opens the matrix. Yep, anything, yeah, exactly. So if you have, I mean, it all needs to be recognized as because it's the firstborn. That goes to God. Exactly. Yeah, so you need an Oh, I just was wondering, so if Levi replaced the firstborn, then why do they still consecrate the firstborn sons with this, with the whole taking of the temple and buying back? I know, that's a good question. So, I mean, it, it probably was uh, particularly that generation, that time and place. In other words, from there forward, you're going to still have firstborns being born. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. No, it wasn't like a one and done. No. Levi's for firstborns is just in that generation. Right. Got it. Yep. But then once they had that special status, you know, then the tribe of Levi maintained that special status. Their descendants did, if that makes sense. Yes, sir. The donkey had a significant importance of That's correct. Exactly. So in other words, excellent point. As Steve just pointed out, the loss of a donkey is still an economic blow, mm-hmm. right? But that's the whole point, is that it's, it's a dedication to the Lord. And, recognize, and God says, if you do this, I'll bless you, right? In other words, if we're stingy and we say, no, nah, I'm going to keep the firstborn because I want that extra animal, right? Well, then your animals are going to be less productive, right? He says, but if God says, you honor me, just trust me. Give me that firstborn. Show me that I'm really in charge. And then he says, I'll bless. And so they'll have you dedicate the firstborn, and you're going to have more to follow. Does that make sense? But you're right. But it takes trust, and it takes sacrifice. Because you are. You're handing that over. And that was a valuable piece of machinery for them. 
right? I mean, that's a pack animal. That's, that's an important piece of your livelihood. And yet you're saying, all right, Lord, that's, what, that's yours. And then God says, all right, I'm, you know, I'll bless that. That's good. Yeah, every firstborn. Yeah, so. The mother has another one that you don't have to. Correct. Right. So the firstborn, that's the, the idea of the opening of the matrix, right? So the, the womb, the very first one that comes out, that's the one dedicated. But if that mother has, you know, four more, those aren't dedicated. Does that make sense? But if then one of those children, right, one of those girls grows up, and then she gives birth, well, then that's another firstborn. That's dedicated. Does that make sense? Yeah. So it was. It was a constant thing. And that's why the, the, the uh, you know, dedication was going constantly. And that's where, um, and we'll, again, it's a lecture for another, another time, but Deuteronomy 26 talks about the law of the first fruits and stuff. And that's where sometimes it's believed that they kept a tally. Right, and then and they instead of going every time to the temple, they kept a tally, and then they went to the temple once a year and they settled up. Does that make sense? That's what Deuteronomy twenty six implies, right? But whether that, you know, so that go back to your once a year thing, you know, uh, it definitely that was a way to do it. You would tally up what you owed, and then you would go dedicate it, um, or if you had a child. You know, then like Mary and Joseph, they were in vicinity anyway. They were only down in Bethlehem, but they're like, all right, you know, 40 days after the purification, let's go to the temple. So yeah. the firstborn of the womb, not necessarily the firstborn of the male. Like, for instance, if he remarried, something happened. It wouldn't, do you know what I'm saying? Like, it's, so, so let's just say, like, to, like, uh, in the instance of, like, Hagar and Sarah, Sarah right? It would, mm-hmm. Isaac would be the firstborn. Of her. Correct. So it's of the womb, of the Correct. firstborn of the female, not necessarily his firstborn. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. Yeah, my, that's the way it reads. Isaac is my firstborn. Correct. Not his firstborn. Right, exactly. That's right. Yes. No, I'm with you. I'm with you. It took me a second, but I'm with you. Yeah, <laughs> yeah and you're right, because that's the way it reads. It's the opening of the womb. So it would be the firstborn of the, you know, the female. That's right. Well, I mean, the concept is still there with, I mean, when it comes to new, the concept of new, the New Testament concept of giving, right? Where it's like, God doesn't put a number on it in the New Testament. He actually just says, give out of your abundance, give out of your graciousness. He says, don't forget, Jesus gave everything for you. So, you know, give back what you're able, you know, and what you're willing to. You know, in other words, he doesn't put a stipulation on it. But, but the concept that God owns all, and that we recognize that, you know, that that's what giving is. You know, he says we're giving it back because we're recognizing it's really his to begin with. He gave it to me. Anything I have comes from him. So for me giving something back, you know, it's his anyways. Oh, and in that, and maybe I just have some legalistic teaching that stores that in my brain. Because I'm thinking for some reason in my head it's supposed to be like of the first fruits, like 10% of the first fruits, like the first money. Right. Well, and there's, there's, yeah, there's debates on that. I mean, because the, the term tithe 
is an Old Testament term. So it's not actually commanded in the epistles for the church. But on the other hand, the giving is expected and commanded in 2 Corinthians. But it's not called a tithe, as if that makes sense. Yeah. But some churches will still teach that, where they'll, they'll say tithe is commanded, but then they'll quote Old Testament passages, if that makes sense. Giving is commanded, but the amount isn't stipulated. The word tithe means tenth, and that's what was commanded. Yep. I get caught up in the, okay, it's first fruits. Does that mean it has to be before taxes or after taxes? Like I get no, absolutely. So that's where in my head, there's teaching I have in there. So oh, absolutely. We're bringing that back around. Well, and some will take that as an applicational guide. Yeah, where they say the first fruits. In other words, you know, out of the check, first thing that you do is separate the tithe, you know, and then from there forward, you pay the bills. You know, and some will, will do that out of the, kind of the spirit of the law, if you will, of the Old Testament. Because it's, a, you know, that's what God commanded in the Old Testament. But that particular command, you know, isn't repeated in the New Testament other than giving out of the graciousness of our hearts, if that makes sense. But that's worth, you know, another lecture. Yeah, do you have a hand up? Yes, actually, if you do the math, there was more than one tithe. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so, like, if you added up the Old Testament <laughs> law, exactly. No, you're not wrong. I mean, it, it ends up being like 25, 30%. Yeah, is what was. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's also known as government. No, yeah, right. Thank you, Steve. <laughs> Preach it, brother. <laughs> I would like to back up to writing on the heart. Yes. You know, written on our hearts. Yeah. Because out of the heart comes, out of our mouth comes the abundance of our heart. So what's yeah. on our heart, right? Amen. It's either the word of God we speak or uh, we speak trash, basically. That's right. That's right. What's on the inside is going to come out. That's good. That's good. And that is, that's a biblical principle that I, and I think that's, yeah, what, what even the phylactery thing was ultimately getting at is that it's not, because, you know, you can, you can bind it on the outside without having it on the inside. But you've got to take it apart and read it every time. So if, you, if it's of you and in you, that's right. It should be what comes out of your mouth. Amen. It should be, right? <laughs> Amen. Amen. And what flows out of your wallet. So like I said, so this coming Sunday, no, it's not, 30%, guys. No, just kidding. It's funny because of 30, time, talents, and treasure, right? There's three things there. Oh, ooh, hey, there's a sermon in the sermon right there. All right, I think you and Tim should get together and write up a good sermon on this. We'll use Tim's money. Yeah, right, right. Thanks for volunteering, Tim. Yeah. Oh, that's hilarious. Oh, amen. All right. Well, let's close in prayer and we'll wrap it up. Father, thank you again for tonight. Lord, what a good God you are. Thank you, Lord, for this this passage that's introducing to us some very important concepts that you'll be elaborating upon later in the scripture. The idea of redemption, the idea that you are the God who owns the firstborn. That, Lord, we get to recognize that all things come from your hand. And, Lord, to, to give back 
uh, Lord, without grudging, but recognizing that, Lord, in honoring you, you honor those who honor you. And Lord, we ask that you would help us to, to understand that, to embrace that. We thank you, Lord, for uh, just this passage and the principles that are here at play. We pray for your blessing, Lord, as we attempt to understand them, to apply them. We pray particularly, Lord, for uh, just the future weeks as we get back into the narrative section and look at Israel's wilderness period and Lord, all the lessons that are there for our learning. We pray for your blessing on all of these things. So help us now as we go our uh, separate ways, Lord, keep us safe from the roads and the snow and the ice outside. We just commit ourselves uh, to you in that and pray your protection and blessing. In Christ's name, amen. Mm-hmm.